Hey, I'm Will Ross. And I'm Devin Scott. The occasion for this episode is the release of the highest profile concert film in years, Spike Lee's David Byrne's American Utopia. Concert movies happen to be a pet subject for us, so we're going to bring our opinions and experience on the subject to bear with that new film, compare it a little to what many consider the peak of the genre, Stop Making Sense, and then we're going to move into a discussion of how the musical experience of a concert film gets structured and enhanced, or not, through its visual schemas. That'll mean running through a whole lot of examples of scenes from different movies starring U2, The Rolling Stones, Neil Young, and we'll link most of them in our show notes that you can find at filmformally.com. Welcome to Film Formally. Well, Devin, we're here talking about stuff today. Yeah, there's a new Spike Lee joint out. It's David Byrne's American Utopia, and it's gotten a lot of attention. And it just so happens that the concert film genre is something that Devin and I have a lot of interest in. Why are we interested in this genre, Will? It sucks. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I, I think it's fair to call it a somewhat benighted genre. Benighted? Yeah. So it's gotten comparisons this new movie american utopia to uh what is by consensus between me and will generally i think considered the best concert film of all time stop making sense the talking heads film by jonathan demi 1984 yeah. and that's the band that david byrne fronted in the 80s uh late 70s and early 90s oh no i said the talking heads the name of the band is talking heads so because it's another new concert film with david byrne at the center of it off of a very high-profile tour and a Broadway adaptation of that tour. Um, this, I think, understandably has a lot of hype behind it, especially since Spike Lee, modern master canonical director, deservedly so, Yeah, is teaming up with Ellen Curris. Noted modern master canonical yeah. cinematographer. Especially of documentaries and concert films. She's been responsible, I think, for some of the most visually striking concert films from the past 20 years or so. Berlin. She shot Berlin. She shot uh, Block Party. She shot Heart of Gold. Mm -hmm. um, all these films look wonderful. She's very good at her job. And this is no exception, I think. Yeah. So it seems like a good moment to take stock of a kind of oddball and, in our view, critically undernourished type of movie. We're going to start by focusing on this new Spike Lee movie. And then we're going to kind of branch out to a broader personal history of the genre or, or the movies in the genre that interest us. What is a concert film, though, Devin? A concert film is a film of a concert. So there is a concert is a live recital of music generally by musicians with an audience generally. <laughs> yeah. And a concert film is generally a documentary, but a lot of films blur that line or cross it entirely where you film a concert, right? You, you know, the simplest version is like an audience member holding up a cell phone and pressing record for the 75 to 180 minutes that a concert usually takes. For the 75 to 180 people who will watch those kinds of videos on YouTube, yeah. But I think the question you're asking, Will, gets at something a little more nuanced, which is what shall we judge a concert moving on? What makes a good concert film? Is the best type of concert film one that most faithfully renders the experience of being at that show? Is it one that that depicts 
the musicians on stage, let's assume it's musicians or a musician on stage with the most clarity? Is it one that works as its own distinct film object that either builds upon or adapts the stage show into something that is interesting and compelling and worthwhile in and of itself? It's a genre of films that is a particular interest to me because the frustration that I, and I know you feel <laughs> with a lot, the vast, vast majority of filmed live performances. Is this where we can get into what, what is a film? What is videography? Yeah. I've filmed a few concerts and generally how it works is I get invited into a show that exists previously. I have no say in the staging. I have to kind of keep out of the way and I'm there to record the event for posterity or archival purposes or for release as kind of like a promotional thing online. My job there is to just as faithfully and clearly as I can with as much fidelity as I can record what happened that night. If one wants to make that into a worthwhile film object, that's an uphill struggle. You're essentially filming something that is very static and very prolonged. You know, usually a concert does not have much in the way of visual dynamics. You can light it with all these lighting cues. You can have maybe some production design. You can have some scripted or non-scripted interactions with the audience, that sort of thing. But that doesn't generally make for the most compelling viewing experience or, or the most fulfilling artistically. You're essentially creating a pale shadow of something that is tailored to a live in-person experience. Part of why the Spike Lee film really interested me is that as soon as it dropped, do we use the word drop still? I don't know. Sure. As soon as it dropped, <laughs> it started inviting comparisons to stop making sense. Yeah. And that's a totally different metric entirely. Oh, yes. Stop making sense is unique among concert cinema in that it is a holistic film live show hybrid in which the development of the film, the development of the live show were so integrated that the form of the filmmaking, the choice of shots, the lighting, the structure of the whatever story it has are essentially one with the show itself. The show is tailored to the needs of a 84 minute feature film. Yeah. And as a result, it's a absolutely electrifying movie experience. Yeah. Jonathan Demme and the cinematographer Jordan Cronenworth, along with David Byrne and a whole host of other artists collaborated to create a film that constantly reinvents itself as it goes. The first yeah. song, Psycho Killer, is not shot like the second song, Heaven. And it's not shot like the third song. It goes on and on. Every single number, practically, the visual scheme of the film adapts to the needs of that moment. And moreover, it's so inventive that it transcends just musician stage audience. While at the same time, the film has a, a general arc of its own, right? Like the, the mm -hmm. each reinvention, it's not like they're all self-contained in a vacuum. It's a larger structure. So that brings us to American Utopia, David Byrne's American Utopia, a Spike Lee joint, and the reaction it initially got. Now that film festivals are online, we had the ability to watch it. We went in, I think, not really knowing whether to expect 
you know, the next Stop Making Sense or the next Ride, Rise, Roar, which is David <laughs> Byrne's 2009 concert film that like two critics compared to Stop Making Sense and it was probably forgotten forever um, yeah. with good reason. It's, you know, it's a piece of, it's again, I don't like to use like labels like videography and cinema, like they're fundamentally different, but it is a piece of what we would mostly consider videography. <laughs> yeah. It's thoroughly mediocre as a viewing experience yeah it's unless you really only unless you're doing a history of david byrne and you really want to know what his 2009 tour looked like in which case it's great for that or you want you want to listen to his music and you happen to want to have like a nice video of him performing live accompanying it i I think these are valid reasons to watch and enjoy otherwise fairly mediocre or even bad concert films where does american utopia fall on that spectrum and what can we learn from that and the reaction to it will I don't know, man. Well, it's been good talking with you all today. <laughs> See ya. That's season two, American everyone. Utopia. I wouldn't say it's the movie that I was afraid it was going to be, but it's it's kind of right at the median between the movie I hoped it would be and the movie I feared it would be, where it just does not really cohere as a film. And this, uh, some of my complaints about the film are inevitably going to be complaints about it's... The film is a filmed adaptation of a Broadway show that was itself an adaptation of a live touring show that David Byrne and his band put on. And there's a general claim that this movie slash show has a nuanced commentary on the state of America and the future of America. And that is a claim that I simply don't buy. (laughs) (laughs) The song structure does not support like a really clear thesis or a clear development of ideas. There are songs in there that are just at best tangentially related. The, I think the best thing you can say about them is that a couple of songs are sequenced in a meaningful way. And in the way that most, even great live shows are, the songs are interconnected in as much as uh, songs written by the same person tend to have interlinked concerns. But that uh, this is this is a limited That's all criticism. criticism of the show, right? Yeah, and this is a limited criticism because "Stop Making Sense" doesn't exactly have like clearly interlinked uh, lyrical themes. But I think part of the problem with American Utopia is that it does faint towards having a broader, coherent message. And the more that Burn is on stage trying to suggest that, the less that I buy it. Stop Making Sense has a, yeah, it's interesting because it, the songs don't go here in any way, shape, or form narratively, but they build a narrative from essentially the characters singing them. Yes. We can get into Stop Making Sense's narrative later, but as far as American <laughs> Utopia, so American Utopia is filmed by Spike Lee, and anytime you do a concert film, there is a there are a number of compromises that you have to consider, right? How obtrusive are the cameras going to be for the performers you know because the more the cameras are between them and the audience the less easy it is for them to establish and maintain a connection with that audience how is the lighting going to be changed Mm -hmm. is it going to be just we're going to run the whole show once or twice or three times and you catch what you can on camera or are you going to do multiple takes of a song or even in certain concert films, in, by individual moments from a song. How much will the blocking be at service of the cameras or how much will the cameras be in the service of the blocking? Blocking being where you place the musicians on stage, right? Most concert films, it's just you put the camera very far away on a very long lens or on a zoom. You know, you cut between six or seven angles. Yeah. 
and yeah, the visual scheme of American Utopia is interesting, actually, in that way. It is. Because like our estimate is it was shot over the course of maybe like three nights. Two of those appear to be truly like a live show. And part of the reason you can tell is that one, there's an audience there. That tends to mean that it's live. Two, the cameras are relatively stationary and distant, right? They are not active and generally on long lenses when they're doing close-ups, generally, you know, stuck in a corner in the audience far away. Then there is a lot of very distinct footage that is trying to look like it's live, but it is clearly done without an audience because there are certain, maybe both a quarter of the footage, I'd say. Sounds about right. Features a far more active flowing camera with much more distinct compositions. Not coincidentally, you never see the audience in any of those. It sounds like I'm phrasing this as a complaint, but I'm really not because my favorite shots are all those shots. Um, I think those immeasurably improved the film, but this is an example of a compromise, right? Uh, clearly, Spike and David Byrne made a compromise that, you know, if they filmed the live show, they couldn't be too intrusive. And when they film restaged versions of the live show, you know, they could be a lot more free. And I think that was a good decision. Yeah, in, in and of itself, it's a, it's a good decision. I, I think where we both take issue, maybe, mm -hmm. is the way these decisions sort of fail to cohere into a formal approach. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it feels a bit like there's two films going on when you're watching it. The, the footage mm -hmm. doesn't really intersect too well. Which is a bit disappointing, especially given that Ellen Curris, I think, is generally very, very, very good at shooting things that cut together extraordinarily well. Part of why I love her work in Block Party is that it's so of a piece with itself, where it's entirely tailored towards making you feel just the excitement of the moment of the community. Of the tends to be, it all tends to be handheld. There's a lot of smash zooms. It all feels almost like the camera operators just were there celebrating and happened to shoot shots. Um, this you know, we'll cut between very disinterested wide shots that feel sterile and then these flowing steadicam shots. Even that isn't, a, isn't like a crippling issue. For me, mm. the real through line that made me check out of the film a little is that this approach never meaningfully, with one or two exceptions, evolves or feels tailored to the moments in the film that it's depicting. The first song is pretty much shot like the second song, which is pretty much shot like the third song. And there's maybe three or four numbers in the film where they go a little further with specific tailored angles. But even then, it doesn't feel like it's designed to form its own film object. Yeah, there's a lack of stylistic identity to the visuals throughout. Yeah. It's a serious issue, and, and that is compounded by the fact that because... They clearly had certain camera angles that they were just committed to for the length of filming individual shows. Because of that, uh, and the fact that the sh each song often blends into the last as far as how its shot goes, but the cutting often feels fairly samey. And in my opinion, the cutting is just generally not adventurous enough to express each individual song. Yeah, and there's one exception to this, which is the... Janelle Monet cover, Hell Your Tomboat. Yeah, easily the best part of the film. Not Which even close. sticks out like a sore thumb because it's the one point at which Spike Lee, you know, great canonical director, 
steps forward and expresses himself in a yeah. way that is identifiable. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's it's a great number. It's a great yeah, scene. It, it cuts. It's the only scene in the movie that cuts from the middle of the performance to obviously extra performance footage. It, it shows, for those who don't know about Hell You Tom About, it's a call and response uh, song where there's the chorus, which is just a chant of Hell You Tom About, and then every verse names a victim of police violence or systemic racism who has died and says their name and then the words say his name or say your name over and over and over and that's what every verse is and it's it's a really effective piece and the film will cut to someone holding a large photo of each individual victim and there will be large red block text on screen with their name and the years that they were alive and it's great. Like, I'm, I'm getting chills just talking about it. It's so effective. It completely breaks the mold of a respectful document of the show or concert. And I just, I, I, I wish that every single song was that adventurous, was so willing to break the mold of such a respectful demonstration. All I can think of was that because the song is so immediately politically urgent, Spike Lee and or David Byrne thought, okay, we can break some of the rules on this one. I recognize that not every other song, every other song is less immediately urgent than Hell You Tom Bout in American Utopia. But I think every song should have an urgency behind its expression. I don't know, man. Izimbra speaks to my situation right now. <laughs> I don't know about you. But every, every one of them should be, there should be a similar urgency behind expressing what's behind every one of those songs or expressing a new idea of how to think or react to each of those songs. And that's, that's what comes forward so strongly in Hell You Tom Bout. Yeah, I think the word respectable is, is a real key one here because the entire film formally, uh-huh. does feel a little too respectful and reverent of its central star. Yeah. Um, we kept going, this should be more awkward. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a very smooth, slick filming of the show. And that actually feels formally at odds with what the show is doing and especially David Byrne's entire presence and thing. There were moments in the film when like, they would break the rules in small ways, you know, at one point David Byrne sings a verse and he's kind of awkwardly mostly off screen and they focus on the rest of the musicians just standing there and that was a good moment because I I was uncomfortable with the disconnect between what I would expect to be seen in a standard concert film and what I was seeing and I wanted more thought put into that instead of here are the usual methods we use to cover these things so let's use them and it's, it's a generally enjoyable experience I think but the fact that it lacks much in the way of development or or elaboration on its central ideas, which are, I think, a little on the spare side to begin with to carry a movie, makes it a bit of a slog to sit through as a single continuous feature film. And while we're talking about that, a more self-conscious approach might have suited Byrne's stage presence a bit more. I mean, Byrne is, yeah, he, he is a, uh, an odd, uh, you can call him awkward, you can call him neurotic, but he's certainly a, a consciously, self-consciously odd presence on stage. 
he makes that work for him so well. And the most famous scene in Stop Making Sense from a filmmaking standpoint is Once in a Lifetime, which almost the entire song is a close-up of David Byrne's face. And then right near the very end, it cuts right as he's like leaning forward to grab the mic. And the last like 10 to 20% of the song is done from different angles and it, it cuts. It's when the big synth buzz comes in. It's, yeah, it's, so it's and it's a very self-conscious flourish. Uh, the fact that it highlights just David Byrne's face, his sweaty ass face throughout the whole thing, just highlights his qualities as a performer. The fact that it's such a self-conscious gesture fits his stilted kind of stage persona and yet it's it's absolutely electric i just i i wish i wish that the lesson from stop making sense wasn't oh hey we can shoot a concert film and it looks like a conventionally covered movie i i think maybe now's a good time to start breaking orbit from american utopia a little yeah, bit yeah that... i want i want to highlight what i think is the apex of the film's failure of nerve which is road to nowhere there's an encore in the film, Road to Nowhere. Yeah. And most of the songs performed from the audience. Uh, the, the band, you know, like a good old marching band, marches through the aisles with Burn at the front. There's a wonderful shot where someone with a GoPro is kind of leading Burn and is getting a close-up on him as he's walking through the audience. And it's just lovable. It's get, It kind of nails everything communal about that moment. For some reason... They keep cutting from that to other coverage. And I, for the life of me, couldn't figure out why. <laughs> and I don't necessarily, maybe it's because that shot was shaky at certain points or something, but it, it feels to me like a, a sop to standard conventions of how these things are made in all bold text, right? Um, it's instead of you have an interesting idea for something, it's, no, we want to make this as polished a piece of coverage as possible. Uh, we want to cut to increase excitement because that's what you do. <laughs> Instead yeah. of a, again, a more holistic approach to creating an, a piece of art with an identity. And I think that's yeah. the central failure of Spike Lee's and David Byrne's American Utopia. So yeah, branching out a little bit to kind of this broader discussion of concert films that we wanted to get to. It's not making sense. I think there's no getting around it. It's pretty much the fulcrum in the history of concert films. I, probably the, the, the earliest major famous concert film, at least that I know of, that is noted as its own art object that's worth watching in its own right, is Jazz on a Summer's Day, 1959. Uh, Jazz on a Summer's Day is great. It's colorful it's got lots of really inventive angles it's hugely focused on close-ups of the performers mm -hmm. partly i think because and i haven't done a lot of research into the making of jazz on a summer's day but it's i think that close-ups are partly a reaction against how staid and sterile it feels when you just watch a wide shot of a live performance and watch it play out that way so you get these amazing close-ups of these performers you get these incredible colors and in all the lights and the saturation of the film stock there's a restoration of it coming out soon from kino lorber that i'm super excited about it, it plays things in close-ups it's it makes concerts exciting it shows reaction shots of the audience so to kind of further put you in 
the space of the concert and the, the feeling of the concert. Enormously important film. So there were there were other concert films, obviously, between Jazz on a Summer's Day and Monterey Pop. But the next and maybe second most important outside of Stop Making Sense concert film to date is Monterey Pop. Monterey Pop is a film that today doesn't seem that crazy <laughs> formally. It, it Partly because it just sets so many standards. In fact, there's probably more standards that were set in Monterey Pop for how to film concerts or live music events in general than there were in Stop Making Sense or anything since. It was filmed in a direct cinema style and... So direct direct cinema. Let's let's talk about direct cinema. Yeah, you go for it. Direct cinema is an American movement, often confused with cinema verite. Wrongly, <laughs> cinema verite is about is about uh, you know uh, the impossibility of being a fly on the wall, really. And direct cinema is often what people think of when they think of cinema verite and rant. Anyways, direct cinema. It's probably the movement that most aligns with the ideal of a documentary as a fly on the wall, right? As yeah. you need to make yourself as invisible as possible and record life in the least interventionist way you can. Yeah, and react as it happens within the moment. Yeah, no plan, no production design, available light. It's what Errol Morse complains about all the time. The director and camera people who created Monterey Pop, D.A. Pennebaker, and most notably Albert Maisels, were some of the kind of founding thinkers of the direct cinema movement. And Monterey Pop is filmed in that manner. It's almost entirely handheld uh, on 16 millimeter cameras uh, from angles that are often dictated more by the practical considerations of filming the concert than by, you know, a need to create beautiful frames. Um, and as a result, actually, they stumble into some of the most beautiful frames in cinema history, mostly because Albert Maisel's is a freaking, like, I don't know, genius. genius. Uh, I think there's one shot in Monterey Pop that I think sums up the best possible version of that approach, which is, I don't know, is it a famous shot, Will, of Otis Redding? I, it dep- I think among people who have seen the film, it's extremely memorable. Yeah, it's a shot of Otis Redding as he's performing I've Been Loving You Too Long. Almost the entirety of the song is not only filmed in a single take, which is itself unusual to this day in concert films, but it's filmed in a single take that is a close-up from behind Otis Redding where neither the performer's face nor the audience nor other members of the band are ever clearly visible. He's completely silhouetted. Yeah, he's completely silhouetted against a light, and there are two modes of the shot. Either you see Otis Redding's back, where you can just make out his body movements. Yeah, it's it's like a cutter of him because he has so much rim light. Exactly. Or he moves out of the way of the light so that there's nothing between the light and the camera and the entire frame is just blown out white. In like a lens flare, yeah. Yeah, and the camera operator, who I think is Albert Maisels. I'm not sure, I've heard contradictory stuff, but I like to think it's Albert, anyways. Yeah, and and the camera operator is very careful to frame him in a way that he moves in and out of the light frequently. So it just creates this incredible dynamic where there's the only visual factors complementing the song are the body language of the performer and the dynamic of light, dark, light, dark, light, dark. And it creates this wonderful rhythm. And and I think this actually speaks to how wonderful the editing of the film Monterey Pop is, that that performance was later re-released as a concert film of Otis Redding's set for Monterey Pop. And they edit it... Shake. Yeah, they edit it completely differently. It's 
it's much more conventional every you know 10 seconds or so there's a new shot sometimes they cut to that shot but most of that scene is played from the front of otis redding you can see him it's a better document of his performance but Mm -hmm. a much worse scene in a movie it has absolutely none of the visual poetry of that shot none of the rhythm um none of that kind of expressionistic ecstasy of what that shot gives to that performance yeah, and it's a it's a major moment in concert film history in terms of rewriting the rules of what makes a concert film impressive and effective in communicating or heightening the experience of listening to this music as you're watching this live performer. It just throws so many rules right out the window. And that's 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 kind of something I was trying to get at while I was watching American Utopia was that to some extent, Stop Making Sense kind of threw out some of these rules where it has more conventional cinematic coverage, which is largely just because the cinematographer, Jordan Cronenweth, who we'll be talking about a fair amount from this point on, (laughs) was just an amazingly gifted cinematographer, incredibly smart and flexible in how he reapplied his approach on every film he did and cut this, but a side, quick sidebar. It always bums me out that Jordan Chrome with didn't work on more like just flat out masterpieces, <laughs> you know, like you kind of have to appreciate him. It's so much of his work. Ex- Despite the just, films a lot of the time. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, and the thing is that the, the idea of shooting stop making sense that way was very radical and very influential, but unfortunately a big component to its influence is people realizing, oh, I can cover concert films very conventionally. And I think we have to blame a little bit of that on The Last Waltz too. Although again, it is not these films fault. I was about to say, no, blame Martin. (laughs) But no, um, Last Waltz to me is Martin Scorsese's concert films, of which I think he directed two. Fascinate me because I think, unlike Jonathan Demme, he's never fully been able to totally adapt his working style to the needs of something like a concert film successfully. Yeah, The Last Waltz was his first major concert film, and it was a film of what was ostensibly the band called The Band, (laughs) their last performance, hence the title. And it was pretty radical in certain ways. You could even say that a lot of the innovations that we're giving credit to Stop Making Sense for were actually more popularized by Stop Making Sense and more actually innovated by The Last Waltz. The Last Waltz walked so Stop Making Sense could run and then fly and then, uh, you know, perform loops. Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, Stop Making Sense, uh, spoiler, we're going to talk about a fair amount of films and Stop Making Sense is like, it's just, it's just on the throne. It just is. There's like a big step below it and the next. Unless you consider Give Me Shelter a concert film, my friend. Which which I don't. It <laughs> is. It's mostly concert footage. Don't at me. I, no, I think that's fair. I think it is fair. If we're talking about pure concert, then it stopped making sense. If we're including stuff that's like 60% plus concert, then yeah. I genuinely don't know which I prefer. So for those who don't know, Give Me Shelter is the Maisel's Brothers and Charlotte Zwerin's 1970 film about mostly about Altamont <laughs> which is the disastrous Rolling disastrous St- concert Rolling Stones yeah. concert where uh, someone got shot and also stabbed uh, yep. <laughs> it's a uh, it's a harrowing documentary that essentially depicts the end of the hippie movement the 60s and all that symbolically at least 
Yeah, it's often taken as a trilogy with Monterey Pop and Woodstock, where Monterey Pop is kind of like the explosive positive creativity of the kind of 60s hippie rock and roll movement. And then Woodstock is kind of seen as it becoming more and more broad and complex and messy, um, mm. but still in its own way, uh, beautiful. And then Gimme Shelter is kind of its ignominious end, kind of the end of the naivete of the whole movement. Gimme Shelter is, I get why you don't call it a concert film. And I really only ca- call yeah. it that so I can have two concert films that I truly deeply love. But um <laughs> It really is a documentary that happens to feature some concerts. Yeah, it's not really an attempt to to, to pick the Rolling Stones on stage in any earnest way. It does actually do a better job than any other film ever of depicting the Rolling Stones on stage. But that's kind of functionary to its real aim, which is tear your heart out and make you feel deeply cynical about mankind's ability to get together. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, or at least feel skeptical at the very least of kind of the people who were the figureheads of the movement and how being a figurehead does not grant you any kind of special wisdom or knowledge. I think that's the most upbeat reading you could have of Give Me Shelter. Can we talk about Last Waltz a little bit more? Because Yes, yes. I I didn't get I didn't finish my point on The Last Waltz. Yeah, so um The Last Waltz because really the working methods that Jonathan Demi and Kernwith and Byrne used for stop making sense were directly inspired by the last waltz and that both yeah. were storyboarded heavily planned and stage managed for 35 millimeter film camera but there's a vast difference between the two yeah the last waltz is a a crazily inconsistent film it has yes. some pieces of concert footage that have better pre-planned staging than anything that came before it and stuff that is still impressive today and some stuff that embodies the s- stuff about concert films that is most boring and that persists to this day. <laughs> it's a goddamn impossible way of life. Yeah. So in The Last Waltz, <laughs> you'll, you'll have... I can never get over that. Robbie Robertson, man. <laughs> Grow up. Anyways, go ahead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're going to have a... Na- we're gonna Sidebar, we're going to have a natural segue into a rattle and hum at the end oh, of The Last yeah. Waltz <laughs> The Last Waltz, uh, Devin, we were kind of figuring out which songs we would kind of revisit and study because we weren't going to watch every single film all over again that we're talking about. And he picked <laughs> two really smart songs for The Last Waltz. The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down is the best performance of that song I've ever heard in any context. Easily beats the record. Best Just performance phenomenal. in that movie. Yeah, and Levon Helm, it was the last time he ever performed the song, too. I will never understand how he delivers such impassioned vocals from behind a drum set where he's playing often decently elaborate drum lines. But the filming of it is dull. It's it's just boring. It's cliche. The camera will just light on whoever happens to be the most prominent member of the ensemble at a given time. There's not much in the way of particularly interesting compositions or movements. It will cut to Robbie Robertson anytime it has an excuse to, which is a general problem with The Last Waltz because apparently <laughs> he was in the editing room the entire time they were cutting the film and was friends and is friends with Martin Scorsese. So, And then you've got The Weight, which clearly has had a lot of work put into it by Scorsese. This is a really good scene where there's a clear idea behind how they staged this particular performance of scene where there's a team of backup vocalists 
just co-vocalists, really, the staple singers. And every verse of the song gets a different singer. So the first one's Levon Helm. And then when the next singer starts to sing, the camera dollies and pivots around them in these mm-hmm. incredible movements. And they're clearly all, all shot separately. Like each shot is like a single camera set. Yeah. And it works great. So it's this idea of passing off the song to each person. It gives the idea of passing on the weight from one person to the next. So it's thematically in keeping with the song's lyrics. And then the last verse where you have the dual lead vocalist, you have the beautiful crane shot where everyone's singing together. (laughs) Yeah. Amazing, amazing work. Really great. Probably the height of Scorsese's concert filmmaking career. Ah, Evangeline. Later in the film with Emmylou Harris. It's even better. I, li- I like the weight more as a piece of filmmaking, but I enjoy Evangeline more. Just to tie way back to the argument I made in American Utopia, there's a lot of the night they drove old Dixie down type staging in American Utopia where it works decently enough. It covers it. It cuts kind of to what you would expect to cut to based on any given moment of the song. And there's very, very little of the weight. Do you know what I think defines the night they drove old Dixie Downs coverage? It's by far the most common way to shoot a concert film is what are the X amount of angles that will best cover the whole show, right? Yeah. That will lowest common denominator for every song, right? Yeah. Versus the weight, which is what is the best possible way we can construct this scene so that every angle plays into a whole that tells a visual story or even tells a visual feeling, makes us feel something with the camera movement and all that sort of nice stuff. And I think that's two very different ways of thinking. Yeah. The fact is, like, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, which is a slow, dirge, solemn song, it's given the exact same visual treatment as, like, Caravan, in which Van Morrison is doing, like, flying kicks on the stage. <laughs> yeah. It's the only time in the live footage that any kind of dynamics occur is when Muddy Waters walks on stage and all their cameras break except one. <laughs> so they stick with that one shot, and it's the most visually interesting part of that whole concert as a result. It's not a it's not a bad movie, but even aside from the concert staging problems, there's issues with the movie. Most notably, it is one of the most notable and probably influential examples of a concert film that cuts to the performers and other stuff in between the songs. Woodstock does this actually very well. It's one of my favorite things about Woodstock is that Woodstock, the idea of it is that it is trying to capture the entire enormity both culturally and just physically and spatially of the event itself, where it'll cut to like this montage, this multi, this split screen montage of people calling home from the concert in between songs. And it's given equal attention and depth as the performances. Woodstock's really good at that. I think Woodstock too does something very key, which is it enunciates something that isn't just, oh, isn't this band interesting? Yeah, and that's the thing about The Last Waltz is that they just have interviews with members of the band in between songs. The thing is, like most big rock musicians, the most interesting thing about them and the most immediately compelling thing about them (laughs) is not what they're willing to say and do when they're in front of a camera between song performances with no rehearsal for what they're going to say or do. Wait, wait, I thought we were talking about The Last Waltz, not Rattle and Hum. Yeah, maybe the most infamous example of <laughs> the film, a film that just... Everyone loves this movie, right? You all, you've all seen Rattle and Hum, listeners. Yeah, Rattle and Hum, 
It might be the most maligned concert, like high profile maligned concert film, unless you like consider like the Justin Bieber one or whatever. Good question. I don't know. Maybe maybe the most maligned concert film of like a major, generally highly respected musician or band. Nice job square in that circle. So yeah, so Rattle and Hum is a film probably most known for temporarily at the time, almost torching the career of the artists it depicts because they come across as such blowhards. Yeah. And I don't think that's wrong at all. It's it's I mean, it's a film where they have the audacity to have the band visit Elvis's grave four years after Spinal Tap. Yeah. <laughs> a film that famously has a parody of musicians visiting Elvis's, Elvis's grave. grave. And they do it anyways. And with I can't empty think of self importance. I can't yeah. think of a better way to sum up the problems of Rattle and Hum, but I I think we both agree that the problems have unfairly obscured the absolutely like earth-shattering immense achievement of about 25% of this movie. Yeah. Well, and in fairness, about about 60% of the movie, that, I mean, the, the interview stuff is what, 20% maybe? And I don't even entirely blame you two for that. Like, uh, most people just aren't like camera ready for unrehearsed footage you know like and if you try to stage stuff it'll come off awkward but, but like i mean to their discredit they decided to keep that in yeah oh absolutely <laughs> it's a problem but about 60 percent of the film is very solid i think good concert film stuff of just black and white footage shot by people who clearly know how to frame stuff um edited by someone with a creative hand well there's really only one member of the crew that we need to talk about and that's jordan kernwith Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> yeah, no, I will get to the I will get to the color stuff. Don't worry. But I want to say in defense of the black and white stuff that the black and white stuff, if that was all the film was, could make a pretty solid concert film. Probably would lack structure, would be a little bit samey in execution from beginning to end, but is is was covered quite improvisationally, concert and show and song to song. I'm going to define your terms just a little for a second. Yeah, what is black and film, white? <laughs> yeah, a lot of the film is comprised of two separate concerts. One a concert in Tempe, Arizona, uh, shot in color by Jordan Cronenweth. Also shot, stop making sense. There's um, several black and white concerts. Yeah, and then there's a series yeah. of black and white concerts shot by a much younger cinematographer. Robert Brinkman. Both are at least fine. In the case of the Tempe, Arizona stuff shot by Jordan Cronenweth, it is maybe the most technically impressive set of footage ever shot at a rock show yeah this is what i've been kind of like putting off which is to say that if you ask me if there's a competitor to stop making senses thrown as pure concert film stuff um my answer is like the 25 minutes of tempe concert footage in rattle and hum have we even mentioned that this is you two <laughs> i don't think we said yeah i don't know it's a U2 film. We'll splice that yeah, in earlier. that in earlier. <laughs> Gosh, we're horrible. Anyways, it is honestly, without hyperbole, some of the most exciting moving images I've ever seen. Yeah. It's Jordan Kern with going the distance, throwing absolutely everything he can at the wall to make U2 look like the most exciting, mythic, group of people to ever walk the earth and he actually manages to succeed yeah partly because the band is like they're at their live peak but i think even more importantly 
they designed that whole Tempe performance around the needs of the film. And it's not just in like small ways like choreography, but the performances work hand in hand with the lighting. I mean, literally at times there's a set of outtakes and you can get to the reasons for those being outtakes later where Bono runs and jumps onto one of the, the dollies holding the camera crane and is filmed from the perspective of that camera crane and it just feels like he's breaking all the rules of what you're supposed to do with this sort of thing. And it's just, it's, it's just, it's actually epic. And I don't use that word unadvisedly. Yeah. It feels like the largest possible expression of what a rock show can be on film. Yeah. Unfortunately, at least half of the concert, which was originally going to be the bulk of Rattle and Hum, there wasn't even going to be interview stuff probably cut into it, except maybe like a couple of times and especially at the beginning and end maybe but the bolt like rattle and hum was going to be the tempe arizona concert film that was going to be rattle and hum and and it's a shame it wasn't yeah like i cannot overstate enough how good this stuff is like like good enough that a film length version of it like if all of the stuff that was cut was put in it it would be throwing rocks at the throne like it is I mean, the first song where the streets have no name, we're, we're talking a lot about like how good it is generally, but to get into specifics on like where the streets have no name is probably my favorite single concert film song ever. It's astonishing. The, the light is not set up. So you see the performers faces. It backlights them constantly and it films them from the side of the stage where you can't see their faces. <laughs> Like very consciously, it films them in silhouette with just these like amazing rim outlines around them as they like dance around this massive stage, not dance, but like as they move around this massive stage. And there's just all these incredible moments, like a shot mm -hmm. after the first chorus where Bon, where the edge turns and walks down like the far, far side platform yeah, of ramp. the stage. Yeah. yeah. And the. Steadicam just whips around and follows them all the way down. As if the Steadicam operator was not expecting it. Yeah. I mean, if I'm assuming they were expecting it. If they were, it's such a great performance by the Steadicam yeah. operator of pretending to be caught unawares. And what's great about it is the Edge's music is not at all the most prominent part of that part of the song. Right. Like it's the guitar line is is actually very indistinct in the mix and just musically not that important in that part of the song. And what makes it really great is a few things. One is that it ties into this idea of freedom, of finding a new place, of of the the liberation of a blank slate that I think the song is getting at and that visually the whole piece is getting at of like being able to march off into the into the distance, into the blackness and how that's a joyous thing. Two is that it's a moment when the drums are actually very prominent. There's there's more of a march line to the drums. The snare becomes really prominent. And so showing the edge walking off with an almost march-like movement just helps to bolster the drums in that part of the song. And that's something that so few concert films know how to do is how do I accentuate the effect of the in instruments in a way that isn't just showing them being played because sometimes that's not the most effective or in interesting way to do that. And then there's another moment in like a later shot where the camera just does these incredible focus pulls where the different performers are moving kind of in and out of frame. And then the frame just lights on this like impossible focus pull 
uh, where the edge's face, he's the guitarist, by the way, the edge is the guitarist of U2, is in the extreme <laughs> foreground. And Bono, who is the lead singer of the band U2, um, just happens to have like to have walked up to him between when we last saw him a few seconds ago and when the camera panned to the edge. And so like they're just moving apart and together. And it's so interesting and incredible. And it's 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 on YouTube and we'll link it in our show notes embedded if it lets us. I also want to bring up with or without you, because um, there's a moment or there's a few moments, but there's one moment in particular where the camera is on a crane craning over the top of Bono's head and towards the front of him as he's singing the chorus. And there's a lens flare that comes in as if choreographed and it slowly engulfs the frame. And, and again, for a, for a good 10 seconds, you cannot see a darn thing at the performance. But yep. the combination of lighting, the camera, the literal elements of the lens uh, flaring and the music create a moment that expresses what their performance is trying to do better than seeing the performance itself ever could. That's why I think it's such a shame that the band and the director, I think, missed the darn point so much uh, when they decided to replace a lot of it with much more pedestrian footage of the black and white arena shows because their complaint was this stuff shot in a giant stage you know, the stadium doesn't really show the members of the band interacting. And I, I have issues with that on two counts. One is that to be honest, U2 is not that type of band. <laughs> they're not like a jazz or uh they're not a, they're not a jam band. They're not a band where I think their moment to moment interactions are defining how you listen to them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they play the songs kind of the same way every time. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and they're most interesting as like these mythic figures playing large large music for large audiences and but i think secondly even if you spotted that the tempe footage expresses that even more effectively not yeah. and without actually like literally showing the band members playing together but it creates vignettes and scenes that show in the case of where the streets have no name the band members one by one so you see the edge again we talked about the shot where he walks off stage and the camera follows him but then the baton gets passed to bono about halfway through and because we've experienced what we have with the edge we've had that moment we can imply what he's doing we know what he's doing off screen you know yeah. it, it's um it, it it develops each member of the band as their own character and yeah. therefore you don't need to be looking at them all at once because you get enough of a sense of who they are and what their stage presences are that you can have the freedom to have little specific moments or giant wide moments that diminish the band. Like even the helicopter shots are add to the energy instead of, you know, just feeling like empty production value. Partly because the helicopter shots are imperfect. They're shaky and imperfect. It feels like they're strug- like they can't capture the enormity of like this myth making. They're moment. specifically shot on very long lenses, which when you're moving the camera, especially in a helicopter, make things very shaky. I mean, it's great. It's so frustrating because of course, conventionally, you're not seeing the band tight close together. You can't get all their faces in a clear composition together. That was kind of the argument for more black and white stuff that Robert Brinkman explained in an interview. And again, the black and white footage, fine concert film stuff, and the interview stuff drags it down considerably, but the Tempe stuff is explosive. We, there's at least like twice as much of it than what is in Rattle and Hum. And it's out there in the YouTube archives and they need to release the current with cut, release the na- yeah, release the current with cut, like release the negative of rattle and hum. Like let Will edit it. 
there's one moment in the Tempe footage where they cut away to, <laughs> to <laughs> what's the guy's name? I think he's the the the, the bassist? bassist. I don't know yeah. his name. I don't know you two. <laughs> YouTube basis. Like, Let's see. I'm googling it. Keep this in. Yeah, this is going it. in. Adam, Adam Clayton. Charles Clayton. Yeah, there's a moment when it cuts to Charles Clayton with black <laughs> and white footage with him sitting at a bar, and he's like, "There's a lot of people who think that you can't." I'm terrible accent. Bear with me, folks. There's a lot of people who think that you know, athletes or musicians shouldn't incorporate politics into their work, and I really think that's kind of bullshit. And then it cuts to. Uh, an American flag with Jimi Hendrix's Star Spangled Banner performance looped over top of it before it goes into the performance of a particularly political song by U2. And it's like, okay, what was the point of telling us that U2 is okay with putting politics in their in their music? It's just a, it's just this attempt. It's just the result of this film that basically has three different movies going on and is trying to balance all these spinning plates and i think it's telling that the tempe footage is so fucking huge and beautiful and enormous that they didn't intercut it throughout the film it's just its own 25 minute block of stuff because trying to like that one cut away from the tempe (laughs) footage the immediate reaction is fuck you bring me back to make matters worse they left that in but they didn't use the part they, they cut out the best moment that Adam Charles Clayton had in the film, which is him whacking the Steadicam in, in like the face, it looks like, and the Steadicam like swirling around and reeling. And it's it's exciting. It's I don't know. Yeah. And that's rock and roll. Yeah. And the, but the gripe with it and what we're going to carry forward into talking about for the rest of this podcast. And there's a lot more folks is just <laughs> the structure, the problems of structure. In concert films, how concert films are just really, really bad at thinking about how it's pieced together and what the film is about and what the structure is. And you know, and this I is get something it. that they're comes tough, up. They're tough to structure. It, it's an uphill struggle. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I get it. They're live performances. Like they don't necessarily have to have extremely clear structures. But Stop Making Sense had two or three elements that developed over the course of the film, and they tie the whole thing together and just make it work as a coherent piece. And actually, I think it's worth going into the exact through line that I think ties the film together most in that the thing about Stop Making Sense is that Talking Head songs are thematically esoteric, to put it lightly. The mid-stretch of Stop Making Sense, right? You go from a love song song to a lamp (laughs) to (laughs) Kafka's Metamorphosis once in a lifetime to a different band performing Genius of Love, which is a very kind of lightweight, what genre would it be? No. <laughs> Anyways, it's just a, um, Just pop, just disco pop, disco pop. It, yeah, it's a lightweight rock. disco pop. And again, on it goes. And none of those songs have much in common thematically, but the film weaves it into the narrative of David Byrne singing them. He is a character that starts out almost inhuman. And by the end of the film, he's loosened up and learned how to connect with the people around him. That is the narrative through line that kind of guides the film more than anything. And I think that's not making sense if if it didn't work so hard to develop the David Byrne character. All the wonderful visual ideas in the world could not have made it a masterpiece. Right. I mean, this this touches on I fucking shot that or awesome. I fucking shot that. One of the greatest ideas for a concert film 
ever, in my opinion, in terms of uh, formal conceit. It is, so basically they handed out dozens of cameras to the audience. It's a Beastie Boys. It's a Beastie Boys doc. Yeah, Beastie Boys. We should start naming the bands. It's a Beastie Boys doc. <laughs> and they handed out dozens of cameras to the audience, and the result is a film shot by the audience, which I think that is, oh boy. I mean, even just thematically, democratizing as a statement is wonderful. But the result is interesting failure. Yeah, really um, interesting failure. I, I, it's structured kind of around this idea of, I mean, there's this fake director named Nathaniel Hornblower, who is actually Adam Yock, uh, one of the Beastie Boys, <laughs> uh, MCA. Um, and so it's playing with this idea of authorship, giving all the audience members these camcorders. But I mean, it's just too much without a structure. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like the, it's just, there's just so much happening. Like they, they, they process the fan footage in different ways, like with color and with saturation and with all these crazy effects they put on it. And it is just nonstop. And it's just this like dizzying, dizzying, dizzying number of ideas that is, is great, but just does not have a str- does not have an aesthetic structure whatsoever. The film starts at 11 and stays there the whole time. Yeah. It's, it's, actively, it's actively a pain to watch, to be honest. Yeah, so the irony is that even though we've been complaining like, oh, like every song should have its own structure and ideal worked out for what it is in the perfect concert documentary, I think Awesome I Fucking Shot that has that to some extent, largely developed in editing, notably, which is fine, but it is just so overbearing and endless that it is like virtually impossible to slot. <laughs> and maybe there's, I, I think a lot about like, for example, there's this kind of, music in kind of the art music tradition serialism that is just extremely atonal ultra intellectualized playing of these note structures and there are people who like study music theory (laughs) and study serialism like who love it but like for it is almost and one day i would love to get into it and appreciate it but it is like almost incomprehensible to the lay person is this your segue to trunk show no, I want to. Well, I guess it has to be now. But I, awesome, my fucking shot that I want to say. Like, I leave a little bit of room for like maybe Adam Yock was like a serialism genius of film editing, but it certainly does not. I I know film editing significantly better than I know art music theory, and I I it does not seem to have like an ultra intricate deconstructible shape to it. No, it's just kind of edited like a nineties. 90s- music video yeah you know it's edited like the beastie boys music videos but it's an hour and a half bad example of maximalism yeah i mean i I like it more as an abstract statement than as a thing i'm glad it's out there speaking of like art object concert films where there's kind of an avant-garde intent behind the aesthetic of the show and how it's presented uh bjork has a really interesting concert film that i like but don't love called biophilia and to me, it's an interesting example of the limits of creating a hybrid work out of a you know piece of concert documentary footage, where it's it opens with a piece of David Attenborough narration, um, kind of establishing it as almost a wildlife film about you know uh, humans and specifically a Bjork concert, and um, essentially it combines documentary footage of the concert with abstract experimental film <laughs> where and it, it will match the two up so you'll have like you know a performance of bjork and you know i don't know i haven't looked into how they created 
the video effects, but a whole lot of highly abstract, almost, you know, again, like I'm talking Stan Brackage abstract video effects and, you know, super microscopic photography, that sort of thing. And as a sensory experience, it's a lot of fun. That said, it falls into, again, two of the aforementioned kind of traps we talked about. One is that the actual footage itself is extremely functional. Moment to moment, the concert is never really shot in a way that is overly specific. You have a lot of telephoto shots, dolly shots that move back and forth on the same piece of track. Um, there's not much attention paid to the image texture. The way it bounces off the avant-garde footage is fun, but it never forms into a sort of coherent structure or makes a case for itself beyond this is fun and cool. Yeah, a better example, I think, of that kind of approach that's a bit more... I think smartly restrained in how they do it is Lou Reed's Berlin directed by Julian Schnabel. Ellen Kerr shot this one and it's just dingy early digital cinematography. That's really dark and it has like these like sickly green and Brown and, and reddish tones. And it's because it's a live performance of Lou Reed album Berlin, which is a masterpiece that you should listen to by the way. And that album is very unpleasant and dingy and muddy and, uh, <laughs> and downbeat. And so it's a good match to the material. I can't say that it's edited or, or shot all that thrillingly well, but it's a, it's a pretty good concert film. And maybe the most interesting stylistic thing they do is that they will sometimes intercut to and sometimes overlay with this experimental footage that they shot. And sometimes it's just this abstract footage being overlaid over top of the concert. And it just creates this sense of a really thick texture that works really well with the music. So, I mean, again, I wish it was a little bit more elaborately worked out visually how they were going to film it. But it's a, it's a pretty darn good piece of concert filmmaking. An example I like of- it more than Biophilia, I think, even though Biophilia has maybe more individually exciting ideas. To kind of continue on our Ellen Curris rampage, we shouldn't overlook her work on Jonathan Demme's 2005 film, Heart of Gold. Yeah. I mean, he shot a number of concert films in general, Demme did, but I think we, I think now's a good time to transition into the trilogy. The Neil, the Young, Neil trilogy. Young trilogy. Oh, yeah. This is the exact intersection of many things I love. Um, <laughs> so Jonathan Demme, he's actually directed more with Neil Young, but he did three a trilogy of concert films in the mid-late 2000s with Neil Young. First one's Heart of Gold, Neil Young doing folk with a bunch of country musicians in Nashville. Second one's Trunk Show, Neil Young with a hard-edged electric band in 2007. And then uh, Journeys, which is a, a kind of a road movie, concert movie with uh, Neil Young solo. Um, and all three make a point of being diametrically opposed visually. Heart of Gold shot by Ellen Curris in her clean mode. She kind of has like a clean mode and a dirty mode. <laughs> dirty is like Channel Sunshine, clean is Heart of Gold, away from away we go, that sort of thing. It's, you know, glorious 16 millimeter, uh, as, the, as the kids say. Heart of Gold frames all its best scenes as conversations between musicians. I think it's just a dynamite piece of ordering a whole bunch of musicians on stage into a coherent dialogue. There's the second song, I think, that they play in Heart of Gold has a, a moment that I really like that I think gets to the heart of so many things that I think are good lessons to learn about concert films. 
So the camera holds still on a close-up of Young for something like 70 seconds, which it's a static close-up. That's an eternity for a static close-up in a concert film. It's no once-in-a-lifetime, but it's a long time. And that, so that emphasizes Neil Young's vocal delivery, his, his focus on the music, and, and it's a bit of a more contemplative way to present a performance, right? And then this drum fill comes in. And as the drum fill plays, what we cut to is not the drum. That would be the usual choice. But instead, we get this lateral dolly. It's sideways. It's from the back of the stage. And it moves past all these silhouettes that are in the foreground. So it's just this series of black shapes passing by the camera with the band visible in glimpses between them. And when we come out from those black shapes, it looks like the camera is going to start homing in on the piano. And instead, it cuts to the close-up of a slide guitar right as it starts its slide guitar solo. So and I, I'm someone who often does not love picture like close-ups of the instrument as it's being played in concert films, but it just and lends this enormity and energy to the slide guitar starting up. So we get this long contemplative shot, and then instead of some like effusive display of the drummer's virtuosity the next shot does visually what the drum fill is doing musically it's building up energy it's leading into the next section and then the snap of the cut surprises us and 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 energizes us just the same way the snap of the slide guitar starting up does and i i think there's a lot of good ways to think about shots and cutting in concert films in those three shots right like there's one shot that kind of redirects our relationship to the music and the performer the close-up and, and it does that in an intellectual way in an internal way and then there's one shot that is matching kind of the per purpose and performance of an instrument without necessarily showcasing it and then there's a shot that does what we're used to in concert films which is showcasing whatever is the most prominent part of a mix at a given moment but these strategies are used so dynamically and they're always like shifting and like reforming to the music and, and what the players are doing. And that's what makes Demi like to date the best director of concert films of all time. Will, you're the expert on uh, Neil Young Trunk Show. Can you uh, introduce that film for Thank us? You, you bastard. I'm going to do it. Demi made three major Neil Young concert films. And the idea behind these three films was each of them was going to cover this distinct side of Neil Young and his performance personas. So there's Heart of Gold, which captures his like harvest uh, country rock side. And the form is probably the closest, funnily enough, to Stop Making Sense. But it's it's very clean. There's a bit more there's a bit of an ensemble focus. It's yeah. very formally precise. It's safe. Yeah. And then there was. Um, uh, we'll, we'll talk about Journeys a little bit, even though I think it's the least interesting of the three, which focuses um, on him as like kind of the folk, folk rock, individualist, very personal singer-songwriter. And so it shows one of his solo live shows. And then there is Trunk Show, which is <laughs> trying to get across his godfather of grunge persona, which is messy, which is given to big improvisations and screwing around with structure and texture. It's white noise everywhere. Yeah. And so that's what Trunk Show is trying to do. Trunk Show is trying to be in film form what it's like to go to a show where Neil Young and his band Crazy Horse play grunge music 
and sometimes play it way too long, sometimes cut themselves off, sometimes improvise long sections. <laughs> so he sings the whole verse away from the mic. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what Trunk Show the movie is in movie form. Because it's this layer of obfuscation it. and prankery on top of this musical <laughs> obfuscation and prankery, it is a film made for Devin Scott and nobody <laughs> else. There's many reasons I love this film. Like, okay, quick personal history. I saw this and The Gleaners and I for the first time, like within weeks of each other. That experience of those two films changed my life. It, <laughs> it introduced me to this alternate lo-fi digital way of filmmaking in a way that I finally understood and never turned back at least in terms of my acceptance of that as a form so you can thank the still unreleased trunk show for that along with you know, the cleaners and i which is a, a better movie yeah but yeah it's it's essentially so jonathan demi and ellen curris went into heart of gold with a plan storyboards and everything demi went in with the cinematographer for trunk show declan quinn who also shot rachel getting married which i actually think trunk show is almost like a sister movie too Okay. Um, they're sure. both. They both utilize. No, that's true. They, they're both sure, shot yeah. back okay. to back. They both use very similar production methods. They're both take a bunch of camera operators into a space, have no plan, and let them improvise their way through the day. And that's what Trunk Show is. It's absolutely obstinately messy movie in ways that aren't even that aren't even enforced by the form like you have everything from songs that just cut out halfway to time codes on the screen from the raw camera feed <laughs> they used a raw soundboard mix for the movie demi will hold you know how demi holds on shots once in a lifetime all that sort of thing we've mentioned it but in this film the difference is he holds on shots even when they stop working <laughs> Like a shot will just like drift away and you'll be stared at a wall or like it'll be from the most unflattering possible angle of this. And he'll just he'll cut like, the shitty audience camera footage. Yeah. Or like eight millimeter footage that you can barely tell what's happening. And it's structured borderline arbitrarily, but it, at least it feels arbitrary, but it is clearly very deliberately sequenced in a way yeah. that has, if nothing else, an emotional arc. And I love this movie so much. It's it's a hot mess of a broken machine. And Okay, I have no idea if we're going to keep this in, and I'm inviting disaster by asking you to talk about Trunk Show more. But you mentioned <laughs> it has an emotional arc. What makes this film a, a success and awesome I fucking shot that a failure? Because this film has dynamics. <laughs> it's not just throwing everything at you at 11. Like Ambulance Blues, unbroken mm -hmm. eight-minute folk song that is just harrowing and there's i think like two or three cuts in that whole thing whole scene right you're given time to emotionally connect to the music to the people playing it um and then it goes straight from that into like a hurricane which is just madness a fully a quarter of this film is taken up by a single performance of no hidden path which is a song that isn't even that good <laughs> and i think it's a very good performance of it but it's not even that good and it's just neil young jamming for 20 minutes on this song that nobody cares about <laughs> who do you remember no hidden path no nobody does and yet it's a 22 minutes of this 80 minute movie is no hidden path that is exactly the type of obstinate what's the word when you're contrarianism that i want out of this movie i would say go watch it and make up your own minds but it as devin said it is to date has had no wide public release in any <sighs> Yeah, I, the, my only way of getting it is by bootlegging it in various ways. But it has it's only literally been released on Neil Young's also obstinately contrarian website. <laughs> so if you want the full experience, go on Neil Young's website, wait for the one day a year he releases this movie on his streaming and watch it there. That's the only way to experience it, honestly, I think.
Yeah, I, I kind of respect Trunk Show, and I just take Devin's word for it. <laughs> so here's the thing. Listeners, <laughs> listeners, if your favorite Neil Young song is like Albuquerque, watch this movie. If you're, I mean, if you if you want to see a concert film that just like screws with the form, like Trunk Show is the place to go. And it is interesting and entertaining in a lot of ways. I mean, funny enough, the the one of the Neil Young trilogy that I think like has the least flaws structurally as a piece of filmmaking, but like might be my least favorite is Journeys. And Journeys is the one where it's a solo performance and there's very few cuts. The camera angles are very subdued. They're just focused on Neil Young. And and there's these, I think, very unsuccessful cutaways to interviews with Neil Young as he's driving around, reminiscing, saying things like, you know, people didn't used to have cell phones, but now they do. <laughs> that's, a, that's an accurate depiction of the sophistication of Neil Young's politics in the past 20 years, unfortunately. It's it's kind of, I mean, it's, it's and it's a kind of effective as a character study, but it's a whole lot less compelling than his music. And like, it's, it's, see, that's the thing in Trunk Show, he only talks about breaking a nail. <laughs> that's why Trunk songs. Show is better. In Journeys, they're great songs that are, are performed well, and they, they're sequenced in a way that forms like kind of a musical biography of Neil Young. So it's like all conceptually very cleanly executed, but there's just not enough going on filmically for it to like hit the same highs that Heart of Gold and Trunk Show do. We should talk about Shine a Light. Yeah, it's the big, it's the big sticky outy part of the notes, isn't it? It's the Scorsese Rolling Stones concert film that he shot in 2006, and he got like eight of the 15 best cinematographers in the world to hold cameras. Can I please that. enumerate them? Can I please list them? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and say like their best or most famous work as cinematographers for each one. Robert Richardson. He shot in Glorious Bastards, The Aviator, and Fast, Cheap, and Art of Control, for those of you who you know, love Errol Morris. Albert Mazels, we've already mentioned him. Emmanuel Lebeshki three-time Oscar winner, <laughs> Ellen Curris. Yeah, her reputation on this episode precedes her. Robert Ellswit shot every Paul Thomas Anderson movie prior to The Master. John Toll shot a little film called The Thin Red Line. Stuart Dryberg shot a little film called Jane Campion's The Piano. Yeah. And Andrew Lesney, who shot Babe and also Lord of the Rings. Oh, and, yeah. and Declan Quinn, who <laughs> shot Drunk Show. <laughs> oh boy this is this this is you can see why we're culminating with this one yeah. so yeah he got like the most cinematography talent to ever converge on one project almost certainly it's obscene they could have been working on eight simultaneous masterpieces these were all most of these people were at the top of their game at this point most of them still are yeah Declan Quinn just shot Hamilton <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so here's the thing about China Light it is, I think, mode for a moment, with the exception of Rattle and Hum, I think. It's one of the most effortless displays of technical mastery I've ever seen, in the form of a documentary, at least. Yeah. Moment by moment, if you observe what the camera's doing, it's bonkers that the frames are in focus, that they fit together as well as they do, and that what you're looking at is at all coherent, because it's so fast, so intense, and it flows, all things considered, so well. Even the lighting is vintage Robert Richardson, harsh backlight, soft underlighting. It's gorgeous. And it's also, it's all for naught. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to go into why it's all for naught, Will? Yeah, I mean, one of our goals with this podcast is like to introduce people to the idea that form is something that you can understand, that you can grasp. You can learn so much more about so many different facets of form in art and in film in particular, of course than you might think. 
And a lot of people dismiss stuff as technical, right? Like, well, like if you're a filmmaker, you might be able to appreciate that. Um, but that's really technical stuff, you know? And with this, we're trying to like point out that a lot of that, no, you don't need to be a filmmaker to appreciate or understand what soft lighting is or what montages in cutting. In the case of Shine a Light, it's a great example of something where almost all the impressive achievement is on the technical side of that line. And very little of it is visible in the results side of the line or the formal side of the line being compelling or interesting in and of itself. I, I think you can draw a line between the, the technique and the form here. The film isn't expressing anything with those amazing camera moves. Uh, aside from me and Ani watched it together, and the one thing we both said at the end was like, holy cow, Mick Jagger is in very good shape. Yeah, phenomenal shape. If that's what I take away from two hours of my life, then they failed. Uh, part of the problem is that Devin and I both, we've never been really big fans of the Rolling Stones live performance. Not that they're terrible. They're not nearly funny enough as emotive as I think they tend to be in the studio. Mm. We're not crazy about Jagger's live vocal readings the vast majority of the time. And that's not to say they've never given great live performances. They have. I would direct you, listener, if you're curious, to check out their Leeds performance, which was officially released finally a few years ago as Live at Leeds, which unfortunately is the same title as a still vastly superior The Who album, which might be the most best live album ever made. <laughs> so you have a band that's not really at the top of their game live. You have a formal schema that's not particularly ultimately all that unique or interesting. It's just a really technically impressive version of what everyone else is doing. Basically. Yeah, I, I used to be harsher on it, but it is it is very solid. But that's about all it ever is and all it ever really aspires to be. Part of why I find that film so uniquely fascinating is I think a lot of the times when people are producing films, and I use the word produce specifically, they're trying to stuff as much whatever into it talent production value you know money and i think that the fact that ellen curris on her own can create something that is more beautiful and with much more of an identity in like heart of gold or jordan kernwith can do that in his sleep or albert mazels can do that by just pointing a camera at otis redding's back or whoever shot that or they can create moments that are more indelible more expressive than the single greatest summit of cinematography talent ever in world history. I think the most damning thing I can say about Shine a Light is that I think the best way to view it would be if someone figured out who shot every shot of the movie and put a subtitle at the bottom of every shot saying who, who was holding the camera. I actually tried to do that by like cross-referencing the location of the people in the frames. Oh. when, and it's, <laughs> That's it's, not going to work, it's, it's you maniac. All, like, <laughs> how do you tell Stuart Dryberg and Andrew Lesney apart? You know, Ellen Curtis, I spotted her. She's like on the wall on a big tripod with a bunch of fans around her. Right. Robert Richardson is to the left to make you. Anyways, okay. <laughs> Good Lord. I know. Uh, I didn't know you did this. I would have counseled you away from it <laughs> i guess we're i guess we're ending on because i mean the only other films that i had in my notes to discuss there's storefront hitchcock which is another demi film about robin hitchcock and it's 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 it's, it's pretty fine. good it's it's this decent there's <clears throat> shut up and play the hits which is another victim of the stuff <laughs> of the performer between different songs curse it's There's... remarkable how much history has repeated itself with that rattle and hum and the last waltz all three of them fall victim to the exact same things yeah there's Haima, which 
similarly has big structural issues. That's the Sigaros film. There's another Rolling Stones film, Let's Spend the Night Together, which is the dullest thing. Oh, God. So okay, I, I, I want to contextualize this. I recommended this to Will because Hal Ashby directed it and Caleb Deschanel shot it. Caleb Deschanel, phenomenally talented cinematographer. He shot The Natural, The Right Stuff, Killer Joe. And uh, Let's Spend the Night Together is an even better or at least more pure example of just wasted talent in the service of it's a dull mix of a not particular of a like below par for the rolling stones live performance by the rolling stones (laughs) with absolutely no energy behind its making except for when there's a sunset and caleb deschanel wakes up we're kind of ending i guess on a on a bit of a down note but like that's kind of the state of it right where like right now concert films are still an opera, when you get the highest profile talent attached to them, it still tends to be feel like a side project, right? Even when it's like one of the biggest artists in music and one of the biggest artists in film coming together, it feels like a side project for both of them. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll screw around and film a concert. Oh, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll let some cameras into one of these concerts, let them mess around a little bit. And like, I think there needs to be this genuine desire on the part of both parties to make a great film to make a great concert film and to work out how do we do that what's our vision for that that's what it takes and that's what happened with jonathan demi and david byrne and talking heads when they made stop making sense right everyone made compromises right you have to make compromises there's going to be cameras in certain positions that you're not used to the lighting is going to be different than you're used to for live shows and maybe not what you would normally want and similarly for filmmakers you're not going to be able to do everything with the camera you want you're not going to be able to get all the takes you would normally want to get and if they make compromises around those problems and they figure out creative ways around them you get stuff like stop making sense you get stuff like the tempe concert footage from rattle and hum so will um you know, a lot of people do like top five concert films in the end we actually discussed this but i don't yeah. think we're even capable of the only thing I think we can agree on is that Stop Making Sense and if you consider it, Kimmy Shelter are, are, are pretty much the... They're right at the top. I mean, sometimes I entertain the 25 minutes of Rattle and Hum that are the Tempe, Arizona concert are like my number two, but like for, for that me, doesn't feel right. Trunk Show is, is, is number two for me just because how often do you get a film that is actually designed for you? Yeah, exactly. I don't know if I have one of those. <laughs> I don't think do you I do. Have? I don't think the Beach Boys ever got. Of course, there's no. There's, <laughs> the Beach Boys, like the Beach Boys are my favorite band and they are like designed against me in every way. Yeah. But what else is there? Like Monterey Pop is great. I'm excited to revisit Jazz on a Summer's Day with the new restoration, which looks phenomenal. Block Party is very good. Um, I quite like that movie. Um, but again, it's more, it's like Monterey pop, right? Where it's more of a documentary about an event than it is like a concert film. I wanted, I do want to call out make happy and how well directed that film is. Yes. Make happy by Bo Burnham, a very flawed film. Very flawed, with but some great stuff in it. Good grief. Is it well directed? Oh, and yeah, maybe the best directed live performance that specifically acts out an audience versus performer dynamic I've ever seen. That was co-directed by Bo Burnham and Christopher Storer. Uh, Make Happy, if nothing else, has amazing direction and very spotty comedy and a kind of devastating ending when you realize the whole show is about a guy who, like, doesn't know how to put on a good or coherent live comedy show at this point in his life and is, like, 
deteriorating day by day <laughs> and needs to quit. And he did quit and make a really, really good movie, eighth grade, to his great credit. But yeah, Make Happy is worth looking at. I'd say Make Happy is much it. Make Happy is much more worthwhile if you're invested in the form of how you direct concert films than it is as an actual show. You know, well, anyway. I enjoyed this episode. How do we, this was a fun one. This was how do we energizing. I'm, I'm, I'm actually watching Trunk Show in the background as we talk, which is part of <laughs> explains my mood. How do we end this, though? We can't end this like Trunk Show. We, with the full performance of, of, of his first ever surf rock single, The Sultan? You know what I'm going to do? When I said we can't just end this like Trunk Show, we can't just end. I'm just going to cut off myself saying and, and say like, thanks for joining us today and just cut hard into it. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. Paige Smith is our associate producer. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not take a minute or two to help other people discover it? You can do that by leaving a rating and review for it on iTunes. And if you want to chip in a little bit to help keep the show going, we have an account on patreon.com slash filmformally. You can give us a little bit monthly. Patrons get some access to fun perks too. Why not look into it? You can find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at filmformally. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Next week, we're going to talk about experimental animation and how crazy different techniques can still create a persuasive world with independent animator Gil Goletsky. We'll see you then. <laughs>